Hey, welcome to Milwaukee's Tailgate, your premier Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Garshinsky, and with me, as always, is J.P. Breen and Ryan Topp. If you want to get a hold of us, uh, feel free to tweet us at mketailgate, or you can email us at milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com. Um, just a real quick shout out to Sound Devices. They are providing us with a Mix Pre 6. If you're looking for premier audio equipment, uh, check out sounddevices.com. And uh, like I said, great equipment, uh, Wisconsin company, do a lot of stuff for, you know, shows like Game of Thrones. So if you watch that stuff, you can hear what their audio devices do. It's uh, good gear. So check it out. Um, Okay, getting back into it. We just came out of the series with the Cubs. The Brewers dropped two of three, and that was after dropping the last two games they had in Washington. So again, pretty poor streak they're on right now, and they currently sit two and a half games back after being up five and a half before going into the All-Star break. So to start out, I guess I'll ask, Brian, how are you feeling about the Brewers right now catching the Cubs? Catching the Cubs? Not so hot. With the way the Cubs are playing at this point, it's going to be really tough to catch them. I think it's much more about what the Cubs are capable of than what the Brewers are capable of. Just because if the Cubs play to the top of their ability, it's going to be next to impossible for really almost anyone to catch them. So, uh, JP, do you think the Brewers kind of got uh, scared away a little bit at the trade deadline from making a big move since they seem to be kind of losing ground on the Cubs and, and the inevitable seems to be happening? I don't think that they altered their their trade deadline plans just based off of what happened in the last couple of series, though it does. I, I understand, you know, why that makes some narratival sense. But I think David Stearns has been pretty clear in terms of what his long term plan is for the team, what his plan for the trade deadline has been long term. But as far as if anybody's going to be able to catch the Cubs in the division, if it was unlikely before they were able to add some nice pieces to further bolster their pitching staff. So that is a taller task than it was before. And at this point, I think Brewers still should be looking at the wild card and there's still no reason that they can't put something together over the next couple of months to try to sneak in at a wild card bid. But I think the Cubs, you know, just like everybody thought prior to the year, they're, they're the class of the NL central. And just because, that comes to fruition over 162 games. That's what a long season is designed to do. And I don't think Brewer fans should be freaking out over any lost chances. Okay. Well, we recently had Junior Guerra. He was demoted down to AAA. And uh, so the rotation's looking a little unsettled right now, especially with Chase Anderson still out. Um, Josh Hader threw a uh, pretty solid three innings against the Cubs in the previous series. Chances of Hader making a start, or you think uh, Stearns holds strong and keeps him in the pen? Well, he just said today on Tuesday that they weren't going to be starting him this year, that the plan was to have him stay in the bullpen all year. So I don't see him going anywhere. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think one of the big things to realize with Josh Hader is that, you know, he's still not being economical with his pitches. He's mostly getting by with his big fastball. His his slider has been, you know, it flashes and is he does have a changeup that flashes as well. But his command is still spotty, and it's not clear that he can consistently get out right-handers at the big league level. So I think the plan has long been to try to make him comfortable and try to help develop him at the big leagues, you know, out of the bullpen. And I think if you do see somebody coming up in terms of top prospects to fill any void in the rotation, it's going to be Brandon Woodruff, likely 
likely this weekend, in my opinion. Uh, do you think Hader could just be used as a relief ace for the rest of the season? I mean, bridging a few extra innings more than just being like a, a shutdown closer type or, or eighth inning guy. I think you're still going to likely see him not pitch on back-to-back days. I don't believe he has yet, and I think that's not really something you're going to see. I think they're going to protect him to a large degree, and I think they will continue to use him for extended run at times when that's appropriate. So uh, probably probably not in the way that if people think of, like, uh, I guess it would be Miller as, like, a relief ace or the way that Davinsky gets used in uh, in Houston. Probably not quite that way, not with that degree of flexibility. But yeah. he'll see some some leverage. He'll also see a lot of times when he's not really coming into very high leverage. I think he'll Right, and I think one of the big things to realize about Hayter and that he keeps being used in extended outings is they, they're getting him used to facing both righties and lefties, pitching multiple innings in a row, and they still need to worry about building his innings count. I mean, that's something that's important for him, too. He needs to, if he is going to step into the rotation next year, he still needs to be building his arm strength. He still needs to be, you know, throwing his off-speed pitches, even if they're not as good as his fastball right now. And he still needs to get used to, you know, off-day routines. He still needs to get used to, uh, you know, potentially seeing guys a second time through the order. That's something we haven't seen yet. And and that's one of the biggest issues in terms of projecting Hater from the bullpen success he's having to the rotation is what's going to happen when righties start to see that fastball a couple times in a row. What's going to happen if you know he can't break off a big changeup in a big spot against a righty? JP, what are you thinking in terms of next year? In ter- the likelihood that we see Hater go right away to the rotation, maybe he gets some starts. What do you think of of that? Because I'm still. I'm I'm torn. I don't know what their exact plan is. I don't know if they know if they are want to like go into next year with him planning on being a starter or if they still want to see some things before they make that decision. Yeah, I don't know. In some ways I think it might be an open competition between Hayter and somebody like Woodruff and Spring to see who you know, almost begging for somebody to to put their stamp on a rotation spot. Uh I you know, we've talked about it on Twitter and we can talk about it a little bit more later if we want to. But I do think that the Brewers probably will bring in somebody from outside the organization to add to to the pitching staff. And with somebody like, like Nelson, with somebody like, you know, Anderson and Davies, there aren't a lot of spots available to start throwing in guys that are coming up to the top of the system. And so Hater, I think, is that's who they want to be the guy next year. I think they absolutely want Hater to be the guy. I think it's been in the plans, but if something comes about where, you know, Woodruff just maybe Woodruff pitches super well, the next couple of months, if he is given the chance, maybe he pitches really well in the spring and they're able to bring in somebody from outside the organization, having somebody like Hater in the bullpen, isn't a bad backup option. If things change. Okay, well, moving on, what do you guys think this means for Junior Guerra moving forward after being the the ace for the team last season? This is quite the fall with with going on the DL after pitching a couple innings in opening day and then, you know, coming back and, and basically having having issues with the velocity and issues dealing with giving up home runs. I mean, where do we see him going or what what's his role moving on? I I think that Junior Guerra right now is just a complete wild card for many of the exact same reasons he was a wild card last year. And and there were so many question marks about his performance last year, because he does have an extreme long track record 
in the minors, in foreign leagues, of not being able to command the baseball, not being able to hold velocity from start to start. And uh, I, I could be wrong. I could be not remembering this correctly, but I'm almost positive there was actually an interview with him when he was going through his his struggles, believe it was in June, in which he basically said velocity fluctuations and command issues, that's part of the package you get with me, essentially, you know, I'm paraphrasing. But those types of things, like you see, you see his delivery, he always falls off, off the mound every single time. He doesn't have a lot of balance in his delivery. And with a splitter, it's difficult to be able to command that again and again and again. And you see that with somebody like Tanaka and in the Yankees as well, as he struggles with throwing so many splitters and being able to consistently throw strikes. And he just doesn't have the other stuff in his arsenal to be able to make up for it like Tanaka can at times. So Guerra, I think if he puts it together and you can bring him back, you know, that's great. I, I do wonder if they might try to remold him in a bullpen role, but I'm not necessarily sure how that works. So the, that's a very, very long way of saying that I'm not sure. I, I guess I don't know what, you, what either of your opinions are on uh, Junior Garrett at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think wildcard is a very good way to describe it. I do think that there's a potential in the bullpen. Um, the the splitter is something that I think could really play up and be a good pitch for him there. Um, time. Uh, you know what the the time frame of that looks like who knows one thing that they do have going for them is he is still under complete team control he has he won't even be heading into arbitration next season so he's a very cheap option and they can sort of just bring him back and not have to worry about what exactly they're going to do with him and see where they can fit him in uh, as they sort of desire they don't have to make any firm decisions out in advance. So they've got time and flexibility on that, which is, you know, a hallmark of this roster construction. And speaking of guys that they could bring back next year, obviously uh, Matt Garza would be in his final year if they pick up his option. And I know a lot of people would probably like to see Matt Garza not back in Milwaukee next year, but Ryan, you the, have the lot of people being you. Uh, hey, I, <laughs> I'm not in the minority there. Okay. <laughs> And, and let's be honest, the guy's constantly, you know, making trips up and down on the DL and, you know, he he can be good for a few starts and then, you know, he'll blow up on you as well. So, Ryan, defend, defend <laughs> picking up Matt Garza's option for next season. Embrace like debate. Yeah, I was just going to say we're on first take now, apparently. <laughs> okay. So, Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, I mean, Matt Garza's a guy who has hover yeah he he goes back and forth between being healthy and not healthy and he is somewhat limited as a starter in that you definitely don't want to see him going you know more than three times through an order and even that the third time is often pushing it he might break if he goes through another time (laughs) um but i do think that you have a guy who's right now this season has 82 innings in and he's got 114 OPS plus or uh, ERA plus. He is a well above average starter in terms of preventing runs this year. Whether or not that holds, how sustainable that is, is is somewhat open to question. He's doing a little bit better this year in terms of not walking people, but it's not a, a major difference from what he'd done in the past. He still just kind of sits around a two to one ratio for strikeouts and walks, and 
it's playable as long as like the one of the big differences this season for him is he is keeping the ball in the park better than he had in the recent past. As somebody who completely freaks out over pitchers aging pretty much ever since I've known you, Ryan, I'm shocked <laughs> that we're going to be in a position now where you're advocating somebody being okay next year in his mid thirties because he got a little bit better this year. Okay. So here's, here's what I'm saying. I need to be very clear about this. And we're not going to go much longer on this because uh, no, I know. it's Matt Garza and we shouldn't dedicate that much time to him. <laughs> 100% what I would do is pick up the option and trade him Adam Lynn style. This is what I would do. I do not, I do not want him on the team next year. I'm done with that. <laughs> JP, who, who, who the hell would trade for Matt Garza? There are a lot of people that would trade for Matt Garza in March. There is nobody that's going to trade for Matt Garza in November, and you're not carrying him on the roster. You're not carrying him on the 40-man roster that's already going to be squeezed for space all the way to March because you maybe want to bring up, pick up like an enable alarm or something you don't, like that. You don't think that they could get a deal done the way they did with Lind in advance of having to set the 40-man roster? N- no, because uh, I guess, number one, Lind... Uh, is a hitter. And so that's, and especially from the left side, there are a lot of guys that have a track record like Lynn of being able to handle right-handed pitching for a long period of time. And unless they had a deal already ready in the wings for, I don't know, like I, I don't know who would be buying pitching in November that wouldn't want to potentially see what is going to come down the pike before they decide that Matt Garza is going to be the answer? Because the biggest response is going to be guy, teams that aren't good, you know, the Padres maybe, you know, the, the, the Marlins. Like, but those are not teams that are going to be trading low-level prospects for somebody they're hoping to be, I don't know, like uh, to, to fill up like the back end of a roster or something like that. That's fair. I guess I just when I think about it, I sort of like envisioned like the Dodgers maybe doing it because they have this idea of running through a lot of different starting options and keeping a lot of different guys rostered and five million dollars for them really just isn't that significant. And I know they do have a couple guys coming off contract after this year. So I, right, I sort of thought of the Dodgers, but you know, it could be other teams, too. I, I I guess I get that. But what basically you're doing is risking just straight up eating five million dollars well because you you really think they would have to eat five million dollars or they would have to eat three million dollars or a million dollars or and garza has there's a buyout on that (laughs) option as well too what's the i don't think i I don't think anybody's following what you're saying right now no no I, i don't mean covering part of his contract i mean nobody buying him and they need the roster space so they cut him sure no i i guess i I would, okay. I, see, I would be surprised. I see that being just as likely as finding a trade a, a trade destination for something palatable in November before you have to start deciding who you're going to be able to put on for the Rule 5 draft. I guess it, you, you, this is one of those things where if they had talked to some teams during the season engaged interest, maybe they had an idea that somebody had an, you know, had an sure. interest. Yeah, so I if mean, they if they had, had something somebody... worked out ahead of time, go nuts. But uh, I just, I struggle to to see who that would be at this point. But uh, yeah, if, if they get somebody and they know that they've got a deal lined up, 
go right ahead. That okay. sounds fine. So we're all in agreement that nobody really wants to see Matt Garza back next year. So um, we will move on because we already kind of buried the lead a little bit by waiting till this point in the episode to talk about the trade deadline. I think that's your fault. Which it is my fault, but <laughs> it was it was more exciting for a lot of other people than it was for the Brewers. Uh, they had a bit of a reunion reacquiring Jeremy Jeffress from the Rangers. But other than that, uh, all the excitement was with the... Uh, Yankees acquiring Sonny Gray and then you Darvish at the last moment going to the Dodgers and the Brewers were a little bit more connected to Sonny Gray. Um, so I think that's the one that everybody was kind of focusing on. Like, how did that return compared to what the Brewers could have done? Could the Brewers have gotten Sonny Gray? Uh, JP looking at it. I mean, could the Brewers have put together something to get Gray? Would it have been worth paying that much? Or do you think the Yankees just got a value and everybody else missed out? Yeah, I think in terms of Sonny Gray, he was connected to the Brewers for so long that it just became it, it became a cliche. Like everybody was trying to figure out what the Brewers could do to get Gray, and they had nothing else to talk about. It's a lot like with the Hamels trade, you know, some time ago, where the Phillies like kept looking at everybody's prospect lists and trying to figure out how they could cobble something together that made sense, and. It was it was Lewis Brinson leading a package for Sonny Gray, or it was nobody. And from I, the A's you know, perspective, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Brewers would have loved to have put something together, maybe around you know Brett Phillips um, or somebody down in A ball. But you know, if you're the A's, that's not a, a package that's going to be enticing. Yeah, uh, we have a, a question, a Twitter question from listen to baseball and they asked if uh, a package of Corey Ray, uh, Ortiz, Phillips and Dubon and maybe a young flyer, something like that would have gotten the deal done or if that was even worth doing for the Brewers. Do you think that's that that would have gotten it done or that would have been giving up too much? I mean, from my perspective, I, well, so that comes from listen, listen to baseball, which is a good Twitter account. But yeah, I mean, those those types of packages where you start to put in a lot of prospects because you realize you're not giving top end value. Those are very difficult to pull off, right? I mean, if, if you're going Ray Ortiz, Phillips, Dubon and a young flyer, like, yeah, I guess that, that does look good in terms of being a Brewers fan that those are a lot of names that we've covered for a long time. Those are a lot of box scores we've looked at and those are guys that we've, uh, you know, either acquired in the draft or in trades. And so that feels like a lot to move. But in terms of Ray, Ortiz, Phillips, or Dubon, or a young flyer, like Ray is Ray is a young flyer. Like that's not you're getting absolute no, absolutely no guaranteed value in that deal whatsoever. And not only are you not getting guaranteed value, the top end of that value is in Able. And so when you look at what the Yankees got back in Fowler, Caprellian, and then. Uh, the other one was uh, Jorge Mateo. Like those are those are headlined by two guys in in Caprellian and and Fowler who are injured right now, and that's why everybody kind of looked at the trade and scratched their head from the A's perspective because you're relying on those. You know, Fowler had a horrific leg leg injury, and you're relying on him coming back and still having the speed, which is a risk. Caprellian is a great arm, but he has not been able to stay healthy. 
I think he has something like 29 pro innings since he's been drafted two years ago because he's been dealing with Tommy John's or, or Tommy John uh, issues and elbow injuries. And so in terms of that, as a Brewers fan, you look at that and saying, those aren't great pieces. You know, that's not, it's not Esteban Florial. It's not anybody that was in, you know, the, the Yankees top three prospects, but you also flip it and say, if Fowler is healthy, if Caprellian is, is healthy, those two aren't coming in the trade period. Those they're not available. Those are top, top end prospects in which when Fowler was available, people in the Yankees organization, some people liked him more than Clint Frazier, who everybody was freaking out and saying that the Yankees shouldn't trade Clint Frazier. And there was a lot of talk too that like the, the A's were absolutely in love with Jorge Mateo. Like that was a guy they targeted in that discussion and said, we really think this guy is good. So there's pretty good chance that they're putting a higher value on him than what the industry did, which Mm -hmm. is getting into the point of how teams like match up and how this works that's a big issue where if you have a guy that somebody else really loves and they put ahead of where the industry is, well, you're in really good shape and you could potentially get what looks like a steal on paper in a trade discussion. Um, and then down the road, it, it may not look like such a steal at that point. It may be a quite different, a quite different situation, but how teams every team does extensive scouting on all these players and they have their own opinions and they don't always match up with what the rest of the industry is going to think. So, and, and we, we do have, I think multiple reports that Mateo was that guy for the Yankees that they just, or for the A's that they really, really, really valued him and thought he was just spectacular. After seeing the packages that did come back for Gray and Darvish, do you think the Brewers spooked the Cubs into overpaying for Quintana or the the contract that Gray has being a year less than what Quintana has, it ended up being comparable, I guess? I think the Cubs had been hunting down that exact sort of situation for so long. They finally were able to make it happen because they were willing to give up a very, very top prospect. But there have been reports for, what, two off-seasons now that the Cubs have been out there looking for young cost controlled starter who's already proven in the big leagues and they were willing to give up significant prospects to get them and they'd been on the hunt and been on the hunt and now you know they closed the deal with Quintana and I think part of that was because Quintana had had a down first half and the White Sox were just ready to make the move um, because I think that they didn't necessarily the White Sox didn't necessarily get top value for Jose Quintana and that may end up looking somewhat light depending on whether or not Eloy Jimenez turns into an MVP, you know, because it's really a lot of that rides on if he turns into, you know, the player that his ceiling suggests he can be, then he's a monster. But if not, then that deal probably ends up looking unless Cease suddenly gets healthy. That deal probably ends up looking pretty sketchy. One of the other things to recognize, too, between the Quintana and the the Gray deal is that the White Sox and the A's – very different organizations in terms of their prospect depth. The the White Sox have one of the best systems in in the league. They don't need depth. They don't need three or four, you know, low top 100 guys to be able to start restocking. And what they needed and what only makes sense for them is exactly like what you look at with the Brewers right now in in the big leagues. Marginal ads don't really do much for the Brewers except clog up and add more options to which we don't really know what's going to happen, right? I mean, in in the rotation, the only upgrades that really made sense were top-end 
pieces because we can fill the bottom of the rotation through AAA. We can do that through Woodruff. We can do that through Hader. We can do that through Garzon, another deal. We can do that through Guerra. That's not an issue. It, you'd only make the actual upgrade is is if it's at the top end. And for the White Sox, it's a little bit the same. The only way you're really trading Quintana is if you're getting a potential stud. And if you're looking at the A's, the A's system isn't that great. The top end of the A's system is not is not stellar. And so if you look at somebody, if you try to flip those deals, Jimenez doesn't actually improve the A's organization that much. I mean, obviously he's a great piece to add, and I'm sure they probably would have tried to do that deal as well, but the Cubs made it clear that Jimenez was available. And it wasn't just available for Quintana. They supposedly shopped him for guys like Garrett Cole and you know things like that. So I imagine they also tried to talk to the A's about Sonny Gray as well. But it's also looking at the Brewers. It's not like the A's asked for just Lewis Brinson. It's Lewis Brinson and more. And so what they're trying to do is they understand that they have a limited amount of prospects that are or, uh, of tradable assets that are available, and they're trying to restock their system. And the best way that they saw to be able to do it was to get potentially three impact guys. And yeah, there's risk for uh, two of them because they're injured. But if they they come back for their injury next year and they're healthy, that actually potentially looks like an absolute steal for the A's in two years. It's just not it's not a risk that I personally felt all that comfortable with. Like for the A's, I would have demanded that Floriel was in the deal or I was walking. But I com- I understand it. I absolutely understand. Um, I guess one last thing before we move on. Uh, just uh, Jay Spitz. Yes. What would be the equivalent of what the Yankees gave up to get gray? What would the Brewers equivalent be? Is there one? It's impossible to say because we just don't know what the the A's would have coveted and what their what their priorities were and how that would you know match up. I mean, you can look at it and go, okay, well, Fowler was their fourth best prospect. The Yankees in a top system and the seventy seventh overall. Mateo was eighth and uh, Caprellian was twelfth. But what does that actually mean? Like JP is saying, you you have guys who are uh, hurt right now, and so their stock is a little bit down. And so the A's took the opportunity to buy a depressed asset. So who knows? I mean, it's all about preference and how the, how what the A's would want. And it it seems like they were of the opinion that if without Brinson, there wasn't enough to do a deal. And right. the Brewers made the decision. I, I think pretty it, – it's – it, it, we don't have any reports that they were ever interested in moving Brinson for anything. No, it sounded like they were moving on pretty quick. Right. Yeah. And I, and the important thing to realize, too, just like any any deal coming back last year for Lucroy, Brewers didn't want to do anything that was headlined by a pitcher. Wanted They absolutely wanted a bat. It's the exact same thing that they've been doing at the top end of drafts as well because position prospects are seen to be less – less risky just because you know guys like Luke, Lucas Giolito is not even the kind of prospect that he was for the White Sox you know that he was a couple of years earlier for the Nationals just pitchers are fickle they're more they have more injury risk everything that we know you know from prospects tell you that looking at a position prospect is is better and 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 I would say that Giolito uh I I saw um Ryan kind of, I think he was looking at some stats. And so Giolito has been a little bit better, but his stuff has been down. But I do want to, I think that if Brinson was not leading the package 
in order to have a position player that was at the top end of the, you know, the upper minors, you're looking at Brett Phillips probably being the headliner. And that's just not a headliner that's going to make the A's happy. And they would have at that point probably had to have included multiple of their top four pitching prospects to even start a discussion. And would I don't get any sense that they were interested in doing that kind of thing. So, right. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I guess we will move on to the listener questions that we received for this week. So, again, if you want to send us a question, question about anything Brewers-related, uh, baseball-related, fantasy baseball-related, we've done questions like that as well. So uh, just email us at milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com, um, and we'll try to get your question on. Or you can tweet MKE tailgate, uh, and we'll get your question there as well. But I know some people like to to write something a little bit more eloquent than what you're allowed to on Twitter. So like I said, feel yeah. free to email us. So we always, we always appreciate that. The longer ones give us a little bit more context for the questions and are a, a little bit more helpful in terms of being able to see what kind of perspective the readers are coming from so we can better answer the questions. So yeah, also email questions are always count up. I was going to say, it gives me words to trip over and then I have to do more editing when I have to start rereading it again. So <laughs> and, and uh, no questions about like, fish or different things you know like i know that that steve and ryan that's their wheelhouse and they can do it but like I, i'm gonna draw the line there just but what about clear. liverpool no 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 soccer well, no liverpool here. no liverpool questions always welcome uh beat Bayern munich three nil today so that was good should have been four nil if we want to talk about that now you can <laughs> you can send you can send liverpool questions I will not read the Liverpool questions. Just keep that in mind. I so, also have access to the email box and I will read them all out anyway. But I end up editing the show at the end and it will be cut. <laughs> so uh, moving on, we have uh, Phil Schumacher from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So we're, we're crossing state lines with our listeners already. We're, we're, we're going to take over that Cardinals territory, I think. Cardinals are twins. Twins, I twins think. Territory. I think the Dakotas are pretty it's twins. twins territory, twins uh, territory in, yeah. in South Dakota. I always assume once you get into the, the flatlands out west, <laughs> you know, that's all Cardinals because they don't have anything else to do out there. So uh, thanks, Phil, for uh, being a Brewers fan. And he said, at the All-Star break, some Brewer analysts were saying that the 2017 Brewers were not like the 2014 team. I would be curious if someone has done a comparison using advanced metrics, DRA, FIP, WAR, etc., between the two teams at the All-Star break. Were the 2017 Brewers superior to 2014 when examining advanced metrics? Were there signs when looking at these metrics with the 2014 or at the 2014 All-Star game that would have predicted the late August and September collapse? And finally, can analysis of advanced metrics around the All-Star game be predictive of second half performance, assuming no additions or subtractions from the core of the team? That is a long uh, question. So is a lot is a long one, but it's actually it's it's a good question. I, I'm going to go to the the end right away first. I, I will get to the 2014 part, but about can analysis of advanced metrics around the the All Star game be predictive of second half performance? Um, yes, they can because more information is always helpful in terms of making predictions going forward. Um, are they absolutely predictive in terms of if somebody has a good first half, they'll automatically have a good second half? No. And, and that's been proven again and again. It's been proven in terms of looking at second half performance to projecting the next year is also not predictive. It's more predictive than no data, but it is not, it is not absolutely predictive. Um, and that's, and that's just because even, even if you're talking about a pitcher, right, that's, that's 80, 90 innings. 
And, and that's not any position in which we're going to be saying that those are predictive uh, of anything. And just because last year, for example, Willie Peralta had a great second half, uh, Keon Broxton had a good second half, and those were the guys that everybody was looking at to be good this year. And we've been been seeing that second half progress can improve or can show improvement. Chase Anderson, for example. But we can see that it also has its has its holes too. So we want to be careful with those sorts of things. But uh, Ryan, for like 2014 versus 2017, you seeing any similarities there? You seeing anything that maybe we should have been aware of in 2014 that that maybe we overlooked just because we were celebrating? I mean, in 14, I think it was pretty clear that they were outplaying their run differential. I mean, that's looking at they were 53 and 43. What is this at the break? Was that what it? Yeah, that's at the that's at the break for the All Star game. Okay, yeah, they're fifty three and forty three, and had only scored um, do, do, do seventeen more runs than they had allowed at that point, four hundred twenty three to four hundred and six, and and I should note they they had played, I, I think it came out because I was looking at the pitcher stats. It was like seventy innings. I think is the difference. Okay, so they had seventy more innings that they played in twenty fourteen. Whereas this year, they had once again, oddly, allowed the exact same number of runs, 406, which is considerably better because the runs environment has changed quite a bit since 2014. And like There's I said, that a was a lot in, more scoring. And that's in fewer innings. Yeah, yeah. and in fewer yeah. innings. Um, but they had also scored 451 as opposed to 423. So they were, you know, fundamentally a, a little bit better of a team at that point. But that's not monumental. Neither one of those suggest you have a a monster of a team on your hands. Neither one of those things suggest that you're you're looking at a team that's really, really good and has maybe gotten a little unlucky. If anything, they had been a little bit lucky to that point. So neither one was particularly, you know, awe-striking. No, they, they kind of look a little similar. So, uh, again... I think 2017, they, they were right around their what the projected uh what the projected record would be based on the run differential at the break they were pretty close to it as opposed to 14 where they were significantly ahead of it well i think the important thing to realize between 2014 and 2017 is even though it's a little bit cliche 2014 you were looking at an aging team you were looking at a team that you know it, i think aramis ramirez was still on the team at that point you know you still had giovanni gallardo you still had uh, you Cal still have guys, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to say it, like guys that that you weren't necessarily projecting to start performing better just based on age curves, based on projection, based on, you know, learning the league better, different things like that. And if, if we've seen anything with like the Tigers uh, are a great example this year, the Giants are, I guess, a great example as well. When that window closes, it closes fast. Like what, when your when your team starts to age and they hit that tipping point, it, it happens very, very quickly. The 2011 the to 2012 Phillies come to mind. Yeah. Where that goes yeah, super fast. Yeah. And I think that, you know, our kind host was able to pull some some good stats here for us too. And that it, looking at, uh, you know, the advanced metrics were in the question before and, and uh, DRA is probably better than FIP in terms of looking at pitcher performance. And in 2014, the Brewers pitchers were actually, were actually ranked 25th in the league with a four, uh, four, three, four Dre. And this year they're all the way up in, in 14th. So even though there's been a lot of consternation around the bullpen, 
and you know everybody wanted to add another starter. The pitching's actually been pretty good this year. Yeah, in, I, in, the, in the scheme of things, I will note on uh, for the Brewers this year there was a larger difference between the uh, bullpen and the starters and their DRA <laughs> than there was yeah. in in 2014. 2014 they were closer to even where this year there's it's lopsided towards the starters are the ones uh, preventing runs right. at a much better rate than, than what the bullpen's right. doing. But I think and, it's, and where did the brewers add added two bullpen arms, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it's worth noting too, that the reaction for the team was largely the same in both 14 and 17 to this. They didn't really go out and make big splashy moves. The brewers added in 14, uh, Jonathan Broxton, trying to remember who else they added at the break. Oh, they traded for uh, uh, Para. Hiroto Para was their big add to give them some outfield flexibility, you know, and this yeah. is not that dissimilar from, you know, going out and getting an Anthony Swarzak. I assume at every deadline that K-Rod was somehow involved. With the Brewers, <laughs> so. <laughs> so when you say what happened, I'm like, I don't know, K-Rod probably got dealt or he, reacquired. He, he was either <laughs> traded to or from the Brewers one way or another. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth noting, I'm going to note it when something I'm writing right now, actually, that uh, in 2014, Doug Melvin made the choice not to trade away Jimmy Nelson. He made the choice not to trade away Orlando Arcia. Arcia is still always butcher that when I say it out loud because for so many years I said it the other way but yeah he made the decision not to trade away guys like that and that's paying dividends right now that right. those and decisions in 2014 was guys. that 2014 was actually the the deadline in which the Brewers were in conversations to try to acquire David Price mm-hmm. and Jimmy and, Nelson would and, have been in that probably or RCO as well well it, 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 it rumor had it that uh I don't know. Is that in, in is this inside information? Uh, I was told that uh, that Jimmy Nelson was the main was the main piece that the Rays wanted, um, and that the Rays thought that Jimmy Nelson had a potential to be, you know, at least a borderline ace or at least front of the rotation pitcher, and that's who they wanted to be able to center around a deal for for David Price, and the Brewers didn't want to do it, and good for Doug. turned out to be turned out to be a good deal, right? Or a good non-deal. And so it, it has some similarities where the brewers were shopping around for a high end arm and weren't willing to meet the price. And so we'll see what, you know, what happens with that working out in terms of uh, one more thing about gray, because I don't see it on the, the, the rundown coming up. Uh, Sonny gray has been great this year. Sonny gray also has had uh, a, a lat issue, a trapezius muscle issue, and a forearm issue, all separate issues, all separate DL stints uh, in the last 12 months. Like it's, it's not a situation in which this person, this pitcher does not have injury question marks. And it's one of the main reasons why you didn't see a lot of teams wanting to, to really back up the truck and, and dump a lot of prospects for them. Right. Like there's a reason that the Yankees made the most sense and that the Yankees offered a pro a, a, prospect package that everybody thought other teams could match and they probably could have cobbled together something but gray i think was overhyped because he was the lone you know because people didn't really think darvish was going to go and so because people didn't think darvish was going to go gray was seen as the prize and he was really the only arm to talk about because there weren't any other starters moving and because quintana had already moved right absolutely 
Okay. So moving on, Ryan E. asks, is the sudden struggle with runners in scoring position a symptom of a young, inexperienced team putting too much pressure on themselves during a tight division race and stressing to score runs, or can it be attributed to something else, Ryan? No. Basically, in an individual case, on a case-by-case basis, on a night-by-night individual, you know, there could be some guy putting too much pressure on himself, putting getting, you know, away from things a little bit too much. But you can't really draw these kind of conclusions based on the kind of small samples we're seeing where over the rest of the year, this has not been a particular issue for the Brewers. Basically, you're going to see, because the the pitcher-hitter transaction is such a complicated one, there's so many different factors that go into whether or not a hitter gets a hit, hits a home run. Some of it's, you know, planning, some of it's luck. There's a lot of different things that go into that. So, no. I mean, we we would look at this and say that it's likely to change because this is just something hold, that happens hold on, to guys. Hold on, hold on, This happens that, to players. That's a really long explanation for a question that I think everybody asks every season at some point. I mean, do, when have we seen a team not go through a stretch where it just seems like they can't knock guys in? That are on base. Exactly. I mean, and they were putting guys on base throughout that stretch. There were the, part of the reason why it looked so bad was <laughs> you kept seeing there were ten guy, the ten runners with scoring position. Like it was, there were guys on base. They just weren't getting them in. Well, and then they start tallying it up on you know Fox Sports when they're showing the games, and I think that that just magnifies it even more. So if yeah, I can I mean, get anything, get rid of the lob thing at the end of the line score on TV broadcast. Be done. That is so ah. Well, and also the most frustrating thing is when they're losing close games. You know, if yeah. if they were getting blown out, people would be like, oh, they're not scoring runs. But, you know, what was one or two extra runs going to do? But when you're losing, you know, 4-3, 2-1, stuff like that, then all of a sudden it, it really kind of sticks out. So, JP, yeah. any thoughts? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Is that okay? Uh, yeah. All right. We'll we'll let you go. We don't have like a time we don't have a time limit here. It just depends on when somebody wants to hit stop on the podcast. So keep that in mind. Yeah. So okay. Um and this is just a lot of reaction based on um the the huge, huge narrative that's coming out of a lot of uh baseball writers talking about how the the Brewers are too reliant on the home run, and because they're too reliant on the home run and they strike out too much. They can't hit with runners in scoring position. They can't manufacture runs because when they should be putting the ball in play, they're striking out. And it's also important to note that the Brewers are, they are struggling with runners in scoring position. They're hitting 240. It's one of the worst marks. It's, I think they rank 20, 26th or so uh, in the league. I can look at it just to make sure before I, I say anything at 27th in the league uh, with hitting with, hitting with runners in scoring position. I should note that the Cubs actually rank 28th. They're, they're just a little bit lower, but well, they've been freaking out on the North side quite a bit about that offense, which if anything, that's, that's fun to watch. So, you know, yeah. Keep freaking out about your young core struggling right now, Chicago. Right. Especially when the issue has actually been, has actually been the pitching. Um, but so, so this narrative exists for a reason in terms of like, they are struggling with runners and scoring position more than other teams, but that's because of the team they've built. Now with that said, they are, they're scoring runs 
better than the vast majority of teams in the league. They're in the top 10 in all of baseball in terms of runs scored. So yes, we can talk about the fact that they're, they're struggling to hit with runners in scoring position, but that should always come with the conversation that they are scoring runs better than the vast majority of teams in the league as well. And they're doing that because they hit for a lot of power and yes, they strike out, but that means they give out fewer, they get, they make fewer outs on poorly hit balls and they're able to maximize the balls they do hit and play by hitting them hard. So there is, there is that. Um, but the, it's not that the brewers as an organization are sitting here and saying, we want to, we want pitch or we want hitters who strike out a lot and that don't hit for average and hit for power. It's been an organizational technique the last couple of years to try to figure out what are the type of hitters that we can acquire for cheaper during a rebuilding year that other teams are, are, are giving up on. And those are the Chris Carters. Those are the Eric Thameses. Those are the, you know, the Travis, the Travis Shaw's like those Domingo Santana was included in the deal for a reason. Like these are the guys that are supposed to be free swingers that strike out a lot that can't put, you know, their, their power into play enough and that the Brewers are giving these guys a chance. And so I think a lot about, I had a professor uh, a couple of years ago that always really harped on criticism and whether or not, not whether it was true, but whether or not criticism was helpful. And the idea that the criticism is yes, the Brewers hit for a lot of power, but why don't they hit for average as well? Why don't they not strike out? Why don't they, you know, why don't they uh, walk more? That, great. Yeah, they're not the Houston Astros, right? Like that basically comes down to saying, why aren't they getting all around hitters? Because that's, yeah, that's why, not. Why don't they have the helpful. best hitters, Jim? <laughs> right. That, that's, that's not, it's not, that's not a criticism that we can do anything with. And so we do get into the conversation as well as, do does the current roster construction of guys who strike out and hit for a lot of power, are they going to score more runs than guys who don't hit for power and hit for a high average and year in and year out. That always proves true. It's we score way more runs than the pirates. We score way more runs than teams that put the ball in play and don't hit for power. And now, if the criticism is actually you should have a blend of those guys, that maybe the Brewers need another hitter or two who hit for high average and don't hit for much power, that, that's a more useful critique. That's something to say, you know what, maybe in center field, we should have a Kyle Wren. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's the, the right solution, but that's at least helpful. That's at least giving a thought in terms of saying, I see what they're doing and why it's successful and why we're scoring runs. But maybe one or two players in certain spots who don't strike out as much, who hit, who put the ball in play, maybe that could help us as a team for, you know, here or there. Like that, that's a more helpful conversation to have. And I wish that, you know, certain, certain people who are pushing this narrative that the Brewers are too reliant on a home run would do so in a more productive and and well-reasoned and nuanced way because I think that the conversation becomes utterly dualistic and it becomes that anyone who is defending the way that the team is currently constructed in terms of uh, striking out a lot but also hitting for a ton of power are also somehow saying that hitters who put the who hit for average are bad and that's what nobody's saying that. 
It's just a matter of how you build a team. Well, and it's it's always odd when Brewers fans criticize Brewers teams that hit for power when, you know, we fetishize the 1982 team in Harvey's Wallbangers. Like, the Brewers have always traditionally been a power-hitting team. So, like, don't complain now, okay? The Brewers, the Braves were a power-hitting team. I mean, that's sure. it's, it's like in the DNA of Milwaukee baseball or something that... We just that's that's part of how it works here is it's power hitting. We'll never the Dodgers are pitching, you know, the the Brewers are are power hitting. We'll never we'll never put a great pitching staff together. But yeah, we're going to hit some home runs. So um, our next question is from Carl Michaelatz. It's a question for the future pod. Okay, that must be this one. Duh. Uh, bearing in mind what you said on the pod about a major position player possibly being traded in the offseason and that the Brewers have control over every other over every position player, how likely do you think that player is Travis Shaw? Is there any chance management sees this season as a fluke and tries to cash in? Or since his contract will be low, do the Brewers try to build around him? Um. I mean, there's a chance. I think that there's a there's a pretty decent chance that somebody on one of the corners is going to get moved. I think that that's fairly likely to happen. Um, I don't know exactly who that's going to be and what that would be for. I mean, I, I look at this and I think back to last year. How many people at this time last year would have been eager to move Jonathan VR? How many people would have said, oh, yeah, that's we should sell high on Jonathan VR? I know there was discussion of it, but most people that I saw at least – tended to shy away from him. They're like, no, no, we're going to build around him. We're going to make him part of the future. And when guys have breakouts like this, especially around the age that these guys are, which is, you know, mid to late 20s, I think Shaw is 27 this year. But um, when guys have breakouts, I think it's, it is reasonable to ask what, the, what you could get back. And I know that the way that this front office operates, they're going to be gauging interest in everybody at all times that they like to engage in all kinds of discussions about whatever to see. And if something makes sense, if they have a sense that, uh, that Shaw may not be likely to repeat this and they could get a big score for him. I think they, there's a good chance they would do that. I don't know if they think that though. So we'll see, but I, I have the faith that if they, if they thought that that was likely that they could make that happen. Well, and JP, Carl also asked if there's anybody in the farm system that could play third. Because obviously, if they wanted to trade Travis Shaw, you got to have somebody over in the hot corner there. Right. And and that becomes a huge question mark, right? Like, there's an argument that maybe Jonathan VR could slide over to third and he could do a job there. You know, you could potentially look at somebody like Mauricio Dubon who could, who could slide over to third and do a job there as well and be a plus defensive third baseman. But... The, the question with Travis Shaw, I think what it ends up coming down to is it's a reaction to Jonathan VR from from a, a year ago. And I think that Ryan probably hit the nail on the head there. But there is a point of saying if the Brewers do want to sell the Jonathan VRs of the world after they have a breakout year, if they want to sell Travis Shaw after just being phenomenal this year, other teams aren't going to be – like, oh, phenomenal, great. Yeah, like let's 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 give you great prospects. They're going to sit down and say, why are you why are you looking to trade one of your best players? Why are you why what are what are you doing here? What are you going to ha- do at third base if you get rid of Travis Shaw? It's not like you have a prospect who's who's pushing him out the door where it makes sense that you're trying to open up some space for somebody. And so those are 
question marks that any any acquiring team would be asking if the Brewers could start to shop Travis Shaw. Now, if it becomes a question of like the Rays make it very clear that Chris Archer is available and the Brewers go and look and they say, who do you want? And they say, we want Travis Shaw, we want Domingo Santana, and we want one of those to you know, headline a deal or whoever it is, Lewis Brinson, whatever. But if Shaw is on there and the Brewers look at it and say, yeah, maybe Shaw is somebody that we would be willing to include in that deal. That's a different discussion. But I don't think that the Brewers will actively be looking to to move Travis Shaw. I don't necessarily see anything that to suggest that it, this is a fluke season um, in terms of that he's going to just completely face plant. Uh, I do think that it's not reasonable to to have him perform at this level um, just be, for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, you don't want to project a guy to just be a potential all-star every single year um, just because he's done it once. But I, I, it's a very difficult thing. And selling high on breakout guys who are not prospects, that's a different discussion. You can sell high on breakout prospects I, much easier than you can sell high on breakout MLB stars, in my opinion. Okay, so now we have a bunch of uh, Jonathan VR questions, so I think I'm going to just package them all together. Um, we Solid. have Matt Ballman, uh, Nult, or at Nult Michael, and then at Archon14. They all asked about VR, and the questions range from uh, how do you justify playing VR? Uh, <laughs> why do they keep VR around? And... Are we past the point where hitting him lead off is defensible, defensible or starting him regularly? Now, he hasn't started regularly in a while, so I think they're clearly past that point. But mm-hmm. with a guy that I think created so much excitement last year as, as a guy that you know this front office found and turned out to be a gem in uh, 2016, I mean, what, what's the reaction? What do you do with him moving forward at this point? I, for me, there are a couple of big things to signal to me that Jonathan VR still should be on the team um, and be giving, be getting playing time moreover, not just being on the team. And, and I guess, first of all, one of the things, if, if he were not on the team and he suddenly hit waivers, everybody in uh, so many Brewers fans would be saying, that's a buy low guy, go get it. That's a guy with speed. That's a guy with defensive versatility. That's a guy who does a lot of things we really like. And because at that point it doesn't cost much. You haven't seen him fail for your team yet. Doesn't feel as bad to just kind of weather out, you ride out the storm and see if you can do it. Um, but moreover, entire year breakouts don't don't just randomly happen. Guys still have to have skill to be able to do that. And so the Jonathan VR that was here in 2016 is not suddenly gone. He doesn't. He didn't suddenly forget how to hit. He didn't suddenly forget how to take a walk. He didn't suddenly forget how to run the base pass, you know, a little bit more confidently than he's done this year. And so it's worth trying to figure out if he can put it together. And David Stern, people forget that was the first move that David Stearns really did was to go get Jonathan VR. He liked him so much from his tenure in, in Houston that that was the guy that he went and got and we traded Cy Sneed for him. And if Stearns not only believed in him enough to go and immediately get him as one of his first trades – but to offer him a contract extension uh, this winter, Stearns and the organization obviously see something there. And I understand that it is frustrating to watch somebody. If you watch regularly, it's frustrating to watch someone struggle. 
I get it. It's much easier to watch him struggle, you know, or to just get him away and say, go figure it out somewhere else in AAA where I don't have to watch. But sometimes you just have to let it go. And sometimes, sometimes you just need to get through the season and give him the winter and the spring training to be able to reset a little bit. Sometimes maybe he does only play against lefties. But I think Jonathan VR has a lot of things that can still offer to the organization. And if nothing else, he plays a lot of positions or potentially plays a lot of positions. And he's the exact kind of bull, the, the bench piece, not bullpen piece, the bench piece that somebody like Stearns would really value. Well, and, and he's only 25. I mean, we're not talking yeah, about a absolutely. guy who's an older player. He's 25. Yeah, you're right. Um, and there's things they can do to mitigate it. They can do things. They can move him down in the order. That's a, it's been a little bit tough lately. Uh, with the way that the lineup's just constructed, but they can do things, get him down in the order where he's not, it's not so obvious and it's not such a, a head scratching thing because that's one of the main complaints that you hear is why is he still hitting lead off? Um, give him days off here and there, or, you know, split him as you were saying, have him, you know, largely just play against lefties or something. You can do some of those things to mitigate it while you're still keeping around while you're still trying to, you know, ride out this season and get through this season so you can get to the winter so you can get to maybe winter ball that you'd probably be a good candidate for that depending um and and see what you can get through i believe he is eligible for arbitration after this season is that correct i believe you're right yes yes he is he's arbitration eligible after the season so the price tag will go up but because of what this year has been it's not going to be unreasonable and the brewers certainly don't have a payroll crunch so they there's really no reason to you know cast him off and be done with him and and say this is all over and it was a fluke um so you just ride it out and and wait and see you know if we're at the same point at this time next year it's a different discussion but that's you know not where we're at so you just ride it out okay final question from ak Schaff. Uh, and this was, I think, spurred today by uh, the Keon Broxton news. He was recalled from Colorado Springs. Uh, what are the Brewers doing with Brinson? It's so weird that they're going back to Broxton. Like, what is going on here? So basically, to, to make it totally clear what we're talking about, it was reported all over the place, I think by McKelvey first, that uh, the Brewers would be playing, uh, not only was Jonathan Broxton, Jonathan Broxton. Not only was Keon Broxton coming back up, but that he would be taking over and playing the majority of the starts in center field. And that Brinson may be, by the time you're listening to this, may have already been sent back down. I think that this is something that's quite possibly going to happen. So to me, the only real explanation here is that they still must think that there's a really good player inside of Broxton and or there's trade value to be extracted from giving him playing time and that they can move him in the off season by doing this, that they can they can showcase him because it, looking at it, the fact that they decided basically to say hands off on Brinson, they basically made Brinson um, a, a hands off guy at the deadline. There was you know, all indications that Brinson is their center fielder of the future. To me, that suggests Broxton, this is all about trying to boost trade value, you know, or potentially maybe he, he plays a different position or is a fourth outfielder or whatever, but I, they clearly aren't done seeing with him. I think in the same way that they aren't done with VR, 
they're not done looking at him and seeing what he can do. Yeah, I think the other thing with with Broxton is, you know, before the season, uh, some folks, there were a lot of, you know, Fangraphs had an article saying that Keon Broxton was potentially one of the best players on the on the Brewers, if not actually the 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 clickbait headline was that he was the best player on the on the Brewers organization. And there was a lot of really attractive, you know, power and speed comps coming out. But one of the things that looking at somebody like like Broxton and having his strikeout rate, but having his his profile is he's he has screamed Drew Stubbs for the better part of a year. And Drew Stubbs, people forget, was really good at times. Really good. Like he was a four win player good. And Broxton goes through stretches in which he just tears the cover off the ball for like three weeks. And, you know, like there, there were, there was always the good Drew Stubbs and there was the bad Drew Stubbs. And you never kind of knew month to month, which Drew Stubbs was going to show up. And it feels like that with Keon Broxton in a lot of ways as well. You know, it's, it's every single time this year until this last time where he got called down, but you know, the, the first month, you know, where or the, the first time he struggled, everybody said, you know, Broxton, he's striking out so much. He is, you know, one for 25 or one for 30 or whatever it was. And then he would just go on three weeks in which he'd hit about 360 and hit five or six homers. And everybody said, what did Keon Broxton do to figure it out? And then he would go back and he would struggle for a little bit. And everybody would say, well, he needs to go down to AAA and figure out, you know, his swing. And, and it, Keon Broxton is what he is. He's a hot and cold guy. That's what he's been last year. That's what he's been this year. It's what he's been throughout his career. And you just hope that right now, what I think the Brewers are trying to do is they're hoping that they bottle the good Keon Broxton for the next month. And Lewis Brinson will be back in September. Lewis Brinson might be back playing every day in September for all we know. But Keon Broxton's going to get a chance to see if he can put together a good couple of months to do, I, I suspect, exactly what Ryan said, to try to be able to extract something in terms of trade value for him. Okay, well, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Milwaukee's Tailgate. Again, send us uh, questions. You can email us at milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at mketailgate. Uh, just a reminder, we are recording on a Mix Pre-6 from Sound Devices. Check out sounddevices.com for all uh, all kinds of audio gear. So thanks for listening, and check us out again next week at Milwaukee's Tailgate. Okay, so we'll start off listing off everybody who's on our enemies list. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the enemies list. We're going to start with our enemies list on Twitter. Or Doug Gottlieb. Uh, <laughs> hey, hold on. That it, You can't pick somebody who's on every enemies list. <laughs> oh, so it's just our personal one? Yeah, just your personal. <laughs> like, unless he stole your credit cards. <laughs> <laughs>